Okay, I'm glad you're here. Um, so, so I want to just go over um, some some thoughts about Yom Kippur, and as we head into Sukkot, just what's going on exactly. And uh, I want to just, to the best that I can, try to maybe um, clarify some, at least in my mind, some misconceptions about what Yom Kippur is or what it isn't, and and um, sort of like. Uh, What's going on exactly? And, and I just want to begin with a, a teaching that's haunted me uh, over the years. Um, and, and that will be a, sort of an, an entree into sort of like laying out, uh, if you will, like a narrative as to what I think is going on in terms of Yom Kippur. <clears throat> and the teaching is this, that, you know, you're, you're working for a, a long time uh, up to Yom Kippur. Yom Kippur is really a, uh, the, the pinnacle of a, a 40-day period, um, starting at Rosh Chodesh Elul. We're working ourselves uh, on ourselves and, and, and really preparing, and then we have Rosh Hashanah, which is huge, and then, of course, Yom Kippur. And depending on where you daven, I know at the Happy Minion we're in shul all day, from the beginning of the day all the way to the end of the day. And, and then, after you finish this long davening, you go into Marav, which is the, you know, the evening prayer for the next day, since you're there already. And then comes this big moment where you pound your chest and you say, Slach Lanu, which means forgive us. And so the big question is, wh- why am I asking for forgiveness? What, what was the whole point of Yom Kippur if, if, if not for forgiveness? And, and I've been told like in a, in a zillion different prayers that I've read throughout Yom Kippur that I'm, that I, that, that I'm forgiven. And now all of a sudden, I'm asking for forgiveness literally moments after the day has elapsed. I mean, what could I have done wrong that I have to ask for forgiveness moments later? That's the question. That's the question. And the answer that I heard, which, I, which again, I would really use this word, has haunted me, is that we're asking for forgiveness, we're doing tshuva over the fact that we don't really feel as though we were just forgiven. And that seems to me like a very fundamental disconnect with, with, with what's going on. If a person can go through that lengthy process and then not actually feel as though they've been forgiven, then there's something inherent, very deeply wrong with the relationship, with one's perception about God, with one's connection with the holiday, with Torah, with, with everything. I mean, that's sort of like, there's, it's like if you imagine a circuit, there's a break in the circuit and, you know, we've got to sort of like, you know, open up the back end and kind of like look what went wrong exactly. So, so because we're coming up to Sukkot right now, let me just throw this in and maybe we'll get into it a little bit more later because it's sort of like, you know, it's interesting. It says in the Gemara that you don't really understand the words of your rabbi for 40 years. It takes 40 years to figure out what he's talking about. Um, it doesn't mean that you can't understand aspects of it. But then I think maybe one of the reasons why that's true, by the way, I'm about to tell you something that I heard from Reb Shlomo that I'm understanding in, in a further way. So I'm still within that 40-year period from having heard this. So that's, that's why I'm on this subject. Um, uh, just in case you're wondering. Like, Wait, wasn't he talking about something else a moment ago? Um, so, so what he says is that if a person wants to know how forgiven they were on Yom Kippur, the test is 
how, how much at home do you feel in the sukkah? Okay, so that is a very interesting barometer. If you want to know how forgiven you were on Yom Kippur, the test is how much at home do you feel in the sukkah? And I'm going to try to give a, an explanation to that later on. But let's, let's get back to this idea of this disconnect of why people can pound their chest over the idea of not feeling forgiven after this very, very lengthy process. So I think that it has to do with, uh, with, with I think the key word um, is relationship. And, um, and, and I'll tell you something. I, a lot of people have this uh, custom. It's, it, it's a beautiful custom, although I've heard some people sort of like rail against it. But the custom is uh, among many people that you just kind of go up to everyone you know and who you deal with and you say to them before Yom Kippur, um, you know, if I hurt you at all this year, please forgive me. Right? And then, and then 90% or more of the people who you're saying that to, there's no issue with at all. And usually the, the person goes, oh, of course, you have nothing to worry about. Of course, I forgive you if there's anything or whatever it is. And I hope that you forgive. Oh, of course, I forgive you. By the way, I want to tell you something that I did. It was one, I, think, one of the, I think it's one of the, my favorite things I've ever done in my entire life. It's like a dream because it only happened like in a moment and then and nothing like it ever happened before or since. And what it was is I was asked to speak before Yom Kippur at a, um, at a, uh, at a school. Um, and it was like a, uh, I guess like it was grades, I don't know, maybe around fifth graders around that age. And I was thinking, you know, what can I do that's meaningful about Yom Kippur? You know, they're children, but, you know, and a lot of times at that age, you feel like you already know everything and you don't want to hear anything anymore. So it's sort of like a, an interesting age to try to give something meaningful over to. And so somehow this popped into my head. I decided to make two circles out of the kids. One larger circle and one circle within that circle. Okay, so there were two circles, an inner circle and a surrounding circle. And I had them facing each other. So you can imagine that. So the inner circle, everyone's facing toward the outer circle, and the outer circle, everyone's facing toward the inner circle. Have you got it? And what I did was I had all of the people in the outer circle going around saying to the people in the inner circle, I'm sorry. And then the people in the inner circle say, I forgive you. <laughs> I'm sorry, I forgive you. I'm sorry, I forgive you. I'm sorry, I forgive you. And then they switched. And then the people who were forgiving were then saying, I'm sorry. And the other people were saying, I forgive you. Because I thought to myself, how can we get it so that everyone asks forgiveness of everyone else and everyone actually forgives everyone? Because a lot of times it's very hard to ask for forgiveness. And this way we'll sort of like create this, like, this, this mechanism, right? Where it's like a forgiveness machine. And so, and so anyway, I don't know if it made any impression on them, but I'm still thinking about it. So, so, so it's important to try to like, just, just get into, it's like, it's, it's a muscle. Forgiving, forgiving and asking for forgiveness is actually a muscle. And just to give you a related example, um, the Rambam uh, addresses a question, which is that, and this is, by the way, this is a great um, question to ask at a Shabbos table if you want to 
generate conversation. Okay? Because this is, I, I've done this before and people always have an opinion on this, okay? Which is, what's the bigger mitzvah? What's the preferred thing to do? If you, let's say you have $100. To give one person $100 in tzedakah or to give uh, 100 people $1 in tzedakah? Okay, what's the preferred thing? Now, now before you answer it, let me just clarify the question. If there's one person with a great need, that's a separate category. That's not what we're talking about. If there's someone with a great need, then you try to help that person in, 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 in whatever way they need. That's a separate category. We're just talking about something in general. Just is it better to give one person 100 or 100 person people one? So the Rambam says it's better to give 100 people one. And one of the explanations that I heard is because the heart is a muscle. And the heart is actually a muscle, by the way. But I'm talking about more metaphysically. And that if you condition yourself to give, if you habitualize yourself to give, then that's, like a, a, that's, a, that's a great thing to do. That's a great thing to do. And what you see from this also is something very interesting, which is that, that the giving actually helps the giver. Because it's, who is it the workout for? You think, well, tzedakah is all for the other person. But believe it or not, and this is a wild Gomorrah, actually. The Gomorrah actually says that the person who receives the money gets more merit than the person who gives the money because the person who needs the money triggered the opportunity for the other person to give. So, you know, it's the cause and effect in this world are so intertwined that it's very mysterious sometimes. You know, I'll give you, um, I'll give you another example. The Gomorrah says, I actually have two opinions, which is that the person who says amen to a blessing gets more merit than the person who says the blessing. And the example that they give, it's kind of a surprising visualization, is that they say that when one wages war, first they send the first wave of troops out, basically to get slaughtered. I mean, I don't know that they use those words. But, and then the second wave that they send out finishes off and wins the battle. And that in the dynamics of a blessing, the first blessing is sort of like the first wave, but the amen is the second wave that wins the battle. So, and interestingly, the word amen is the gematria 91, which is, um, which is basically uh, two names of Hashem, imakola, uh, basically one that stands for master of heaven and one that stands for master of earth combined. So amen is a very big blessing because you're sort of like solidifying the connection between heaven and earth. And you're basically saying that this apple that you got, like it stemmed from heaven and it materialized on earth. So that's, that's kind of like the, a little bit of a taste of the depths of the word amen. But anyway, so, so in terms of forgiveness, it's very important to be able to ask for forgiveness and it's very important to be able to forgive. Now, now, this custom of just sort of like asking people, just do you forgive me? So I want to tell you a personal story. So I had a friendship um, with someone who, uh, uh, you know, the, the relationship had, had, was not in a great place. It's better now, but it was not in a great place. And we hardly ever talked. And I, you know, I would call before Yom Kippur and I would say, uh, do you forgive me? 
And then the relationship had broken down to the point where the next year I, I was contemplating making that call. And I realized the last time I spoke to this person was a year ago when I said, do you forgive me? And I thought to myself, what, do, what does he have to forgive me for? We haven't spoken in a, in a year, basically. What could I have said in that year? So I didn't call. Now, the next first time I saw this person, he said to me, I want you to know something. I was waiting for your call. And I was going to tell you, this call is absolutely meaningless. And then he said, and then you didn't call. And he was so sad. <laughs> and, and the reason why he was sad, I think, was because he realized that that call was evidence that there was a relationship. And then when he didn't get the call, he said, you know something, there's not even a relationship. And so there are people who show up maybe once a year in shul on Yom Kippur, and sometimes, you know, they wonder, well, is this worth anything? And I think it's very much worth something because it's a sign that there's a relationship. And that's very, very meaningful. So I want to take this another step, go a little bit deeper with this. Imagine, <clears throat> and this is kind of now getting into the dy dynamics of what I think are really happening on Yom Kippur, okay? Imagine there's someone who you've hurt very badly, or you've just hurt, let's just say. And you really want to call to apologize. But it's a very difficult call to make because you're not exactly sure what to say. Not only that, but you're semi-terrified what you think they might say when you call. So you don't even know what the reaction is going to be. So A, you don't have the words to say, and B, you don't know what they're going to say back. And as a result, it creates this sort of paralysis, and you don't make, a call, you don't make the call at all. All right? Now, while you're in this state of mind, imagine the phone rings, and it's them on the other line. And they say to you, listen, I want you to know something. I love you, and I forgive you. And I'm not sure what happened. I don't know what went wrong. But I just want you to know that I love you and I forgive you. And at some point I must have lost you or you lost me or whatever it is. Let's sit down and work it out and figure out, like, our relationship. Okay? So that's Yom Kippur. That's Yom Kippur. And... The reason why this hit me as like a big chiddish, like as a big insight, is because I think most people think that when they show up on Yom Kippur to shul, that they are making the call to God and that they are initiating the act of forgiveness. But it's actually way deeper than that. And let me explain to you that that God actually forgave us all the way back from the first day of creation. And the Gemara says that God created tshuva, the ability to repair a relationship, before the world was even created. So let me just sketch that out in a little bit more detail. You know, we have um, gematria, which is, which is basically, the Torah is the infinite compressed into the finite. 
the infinite compressed into the finite, which means it's working on so many different levels, including the mathematical level. So there's actually real math in Torah, because God is talking in so many different languages in the Torah, including mathematics. So when we talk about gematria, we're talking about the language of mathematics as expressed by the infinity of the Torah. Okay? So a lot of the gematrias that you see are said by Hasidic rebbe's and later uh, 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 Kabbalists, uh, mystics, and things like that. But you do have a certain number of gematrias from the Gomorrah itself, from the Talmud itself. So those, those are extra special, those gematrias, because they're from the Talmud. Okay? So the Talmud says the following about Yom Kippur that there are 365 days in the year. So that's been known for a long time. This is going back you know, a few thousand years already. So, so we know that. So 365, the, the, the gematria, the Gemara says, of the word hasatan, like satan is where the, the English gets Satan from. It means this heavenly accuser. And by the way, the Gemara says that the satan the Malach Amavis, which is translated as the angel of death, and the Yetzirah, um, translated as the, the evil inclination or negative inclination, all those three are one force. That's all one entity, one spiritual entity. But it kind of breaks it down. One attacks our souls, one attacks our bodies, one, attack, one, one is a heavenly accuser. So the Satan is the heavenly accuser. Okay? So the Gemara says that we have 365 days in the year, and the gematri of the word hasatan is 364. So 365 days in the year, hasatan is 364, which means that there's one day of the year which is free from all accusation. The heavenly accuser is out of business. He's just gone on that day. And the Gomorrah says that day is Yom Kippur. One day. Yom Kippur. Now listen to this. The Medrash picks up on the language of this one day and says that when you look in the beginning of the Torah, it chronicles the beginning, the first seven days of creation. And there's an interesting language disconnect, which is very famous. Everyone jumps on this, which is the first day of creation is called Yom Echad, which means one day. Okay, so the Medrash says that that one day is, is the first day of creation. Meaning to say, in other words, it's linking, it's linking the one day free of the heavenly accuser to Yom Echad, the first day of creation. Now, if you think about it, it, it doesn't explain it further than that, but if you think about the implication of that, what it's saying is that the energy of Yom Kippur was already put into the very first day of creation. Meaning to say, remember, human beings were created on the sixth day of creation. Meaning to say, before God even created people, he created forgiveness. That's an awesome, that's an awesome concept. That's awesome. Before God even created people, he readied forgiveness from the very outset. From the very outset. That, that's a very big thought. If you want to know who God is, God is the one who readied forgiveness, to give forgiveness, even before he created people. I mean, if you want to, that's, that's like when you think about, well, who's God? That's got to be a headline in terms of what your impression of God is. All right, now listen. That means 
So Yom Kippur existed way before we ever existed. That means that anyone who thinks that they're showing up on Yom Kippur because they're initiating the act of forgiveness is completely off. God established Yom Kippur for us to work out the relationship. Remember, let's go back to the other example and figure it and, and, and apply it because now it will make sense. Imagine you did something wrong and you don't have the words and you don't even know how to, how to make the call and while you're struggling with this, the phone rings and, 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 and it's God. <laughs> it's God on the phone. And he says, you know something? I just want you to know something. I love you and I forgive you. And I'm not sure what went wrong exactly, but why don't we meet on the 10th day of the seventh month? <laughs> Let's make a meeting. You pick, you pick the place. <laughs> you pick it, and I'll be there. And you show up, and, and, and let's work out our relationship. That's what Yom Kippur is. That's what Yom Kippur is. Now, that's, that's all grounded in our sources. I'm not making anything up here. I'm just telling you what the sources say. That's a very different idea about Yom Kippur. Now, that means that there's a real relationship going on. And we have to be in a relationship because the thing that I've sort of like partially kind of dedicated my life to is, is, is this idea of trying to eradicate this concept that God is an abstraction, that God is this kind of thing up there, or whatever it is, and not quite sure how to understand or relate to it. But God's right, wherever you are, God is right here in the room at the time, keeping you alive, keeping your heart beating, keeping your brain functioning. Wherever you are, you're in a direct relationship at every single moment. And the more we can acknowledge it and embrace it, the more we actually live in reality itself. And so that's why I think, now let's get back to this teaching of Reb Shlomo's. I want to try to apply this understanding to that, and then maybe we can understand maybe another level of what he meant. Again, he said, if you want to know how forgiven you were on Yom Kippur, the answer is, or the test is, how at home do you feel in the sukkah? All right, so what does that mean? So, so I, I believe it's the Ari um, that that's the source for this that says that the sukkah is actually a hug. It's a divine hug from God. And of course, a sukkah is, is the whole idea is that it surrounds you. And actually, the first letter of the sukkah is, is the letter samach, which is a circle. That means a hug. And Reb Shlomo said that when someone hugs you, when you get a hug from someone, why does, you know, they even talk about hug therapy now, you know? You know how good a good hug feels. It's extremely therapeutic. And the reason is, Reb Shlomo talks about it on a sort of a more metaphysical level, that when you hug someone, you're actually making the letter Samach around them. And Samach, if you look in the Ashray, means to uplift the fallen. So basically what you're communicating in body language and on a soul level when you hug someone is, I'm not going to let you fall. Which is, that's, I mean, 
yeah, yeah, hug feels good, <laughs> you know? I mean, what deeper reassurance could you ask from anyone? So, so the Samech, the Samech is the Sukkah. The Samech is, you're in a Sukkah, and the whole idea of a Sukkah is it, it's, it's institutionalized fragility. <laughs> All right? Really, really. Um, it's institutionalized fragility. Because if you build the walls out of cement blocks, the sukkah isn't kosher. It actually has to be a temporary structure. Okay? It has to be by nature. And the roof, it's not much of a roof. If you use metal at all on the roof, it's not kosher. You know, it's, uh, I, I just heard a report about, um, you know, basically poverty in Africa. And they were talking about... Um, it was an interesting charity product project where they wanted to try to give money directly to the people themselves as opposed to providing them with things. A very interesting uh, piece. It, it, it's on This American Life, uh, if you want to listen to it. And actually, th there are all sorts of amazingly creative uh, uh, tzedakahs. One of them is actually they've bred super cows, okay? And, you know, the, in, in, you've seen pictures, I'm sure, of sometimes, you know, when you've got these very impoverished places, this is all over the world, you're lucky if you have a cow, by the way. That's, that's like a major asset. But a lot of times those cows are incredibly scrawny and they produce almost no milk. So they're gifting these African villagers with genetically bred super cows that are like milk factories. And they produce tons of milk every single day, like quarts and quarts of milk. Like basically 10 times the amount of milk that they would normally get. And, and it's like handing like this poor villager a factory. And then they can make all sorts of products out of that. You know? So, so that's, that's one thing. But, but there's another thing where they, tr they decided, what if we just give you money directly? We're just going to put some cash in your pocket and see what you do with it. And one of the things that they found was the measure that they decided who are they going to actually give, because they only had a limited number of funds, who are they going to give it to? The measure was, what does their roof look like? Okay? Because sort of like the, 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 the socioeconomic strata could be drawn with those people with grass roofs and those people with metal roofs. Okay? In other words, the first thing you did when you got, like, a tiny bit of cash was to get yourself a metal roof. That was the first thing that you did. And if you can think about it, for good reason. Like, you know, what do you want a grass roof for? So, so a sukkah has to have a grass roof. <laughs> because the entire point is utter fragility. But listen to this. Listen to this. Listen to this, this, this um, dynamic that God is putting into place. Utter fragility amidst utter divine reassurance. Those two things have to happen simultaneously. It's the fragility of life, the temporariness of life, at the same time of this divine hug. So God is telling you, you know something? This world, it's wacky. <laughs> That's the way I made it. I did it on purpose. It's filled with tests. It's a minefield. 
There's lots of great stuff in it between bombs blowing off their diamonds and ice cream, you know, but it's like, it's, it's a crazy place, this world. But at the same time, this incredible hug, this incredible hug. So, you know, one of my favorite teachings from Reb Leibla Eger, just to, just to enforce this point a little bit more. You see, when Yaakov Avinu uh, left Esav, so there was this great reconciliation uh, of sorts. It's, it's can understand on a number of different levels between Jacob and Esau, who seemingly wanted to kill him, but then kind of like became, uh, they became friends on some level, but maybe not so much, so a little bit unclear. And then they sort of go their separate ways. And right after Jacob leaves Esau, uh, after this incredible meeting, it says he goes and he builds the sukkah. And, um, and that he names the place that he encamps in afterwards, he names it sukkah. So that's, that Reb Label Eger asks an interesting question. He says, if the whole idea of a sukkah is temporariness, why is he naming the, the village or the city, whatever it is, sukkah? Because that has a level of permanence. So, so Reb Label Eger explains that, that Yaakov Avino in his holiness, in his divine wisdom, wanted to make permanent the idea of impermanence. He wanted to make permanent this idea that we're just passing through this world. And that's why he named the place after it, so that we should live with that consciousness. You know, it's a famous story, but, um, but we got to say it. Uh, someone who was very wealthy came up to the Chofetz Chaim and um, saw that the Chofetz Chaim was you know, this great holy man was living in this incredibly small, very, very modest place. And yet here he was basically the, you know, the leader of the entire Jewish people. And he couldn't understand it. And so, so this wealthy man said to the Chofetz Chaim, um, where's all your stuff? And he said, um, so the Chofetz Chaim says to this very wealthy man, he says, where's all your stuff? And the man, who was a visitor, said, I'm just passing through. And he said, so am I. <laughs> so, so that's the idea of living with this sense of uh, temporariness on an ongoing basis. On an ongoing basis. So now, let's get back to this question. So we asked this question, how could it be that after uh, Yom Kippur, which is really the, the culmination of this 40-day period, and we're going to go into that a, a little bit more in a moment. The culmination of this 40-day period, how can it be that, um, that you're striking your chest and saying, God, please forgive me? And they say that that's because people have to do tshuva on the fact that they don't believe that they were just forgiven. And then what do we say that the, that the antidote to that is? You sit in the sukkah. So now, if you're sitting in the sukkah, and it's just some hut or some shack, and it's like, you know, I could be sitting in my house, I'm sitting in the sukkah, I could be sitting on the bench, I could be at a Starbucks right now, so I'm sitting in the sukkah. Not so great. Not so great. If you're sitting in the sukkah, and you're being hugged by God, that means that you're in an active relationship. 
that means that you're in an active relationship, which means that that's exactly what we wanted to accomplish with Yom Kippur, to be back into this relationship, this active, ongoing, vibrant, real relationship. So I think maybe that's what Reb Shlomo meant. If you're sitting amidst a hug, then that's, then that's the most beautiful thing in the world. Now, let's get back to this 40-day period. So this is another thing that I was thinking about, which is 40 days are really interesting. And it says in the Talmud that the gender of a child in terms of a fetus in the womb is determined on the 40th day. And they actually learn out halachas based on that, which is that, you know, it's fine to pray if you want a boy or if you want a girl. There's no problem with that whatsoever in terms of those prayers. Um, however, after the 40th day, they say, don't, don't, don't make that prayer anymore because it's already been determined. Okay? So, so that means that on the 40th day, something assumes its form. It takes shape on the 40th day. By the way, a number of years ago, I saw this. It said uh, in the New York Times they did a piece that, they, that it was something like they, they had found out on the, it was the 41st day or the, I think it was even the 42nd day that they had determined in a lab that that's when the gender is determined. Say the 45th day? Okay, so that that's when it's determined. And they asked a rabbi about this and uh, they said, but it says in the Talmud on the 40th day. Now, meanwhile, this was like a big deal that they had figured out the 45th day. And he said, they're getting closer. <laughs> that was, <laughs> you know. So science is still catching up with the Torah in, in, terms of, in terms of these ideas. But we see that on the 40th day, it takes shape. And by the way, someone came up to me confidentially. I hope that I can say this after I gave this talk. And he said to me that he's doing some, some, some somewhat classified research. Um, and, and I guess this wasn't classified, otherwise he wouldn't have told me, but in terms of war games, and that they are actually assuming a big change on the 40th day in terms of their computer modeling. So it's just amazing how these ideas, all these ideas have been anticipated by the Torah since the, since the very beginning of time. And it's just a question of respecting them and appreciating them and speaking the language, because a lot of times... They didn't have the vocabulary. Like, there are things that are absolutely phrased in terms of quantum physics. There, there's no question about it. Any person who takes the teaching seriously sees quantum physics in these ancient teachings. But they didn't have the vocabulary to express it in, 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 in the modern jargon or vernacular. And so, so it's just a question of just taking these great, very great, awesome, divinely inspired people seriously. And then having the, the seichel, the, 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 the smarts and the learning background to be able to translate their words. It's not a question of sort of like, oh, I'm reinterpreting their words to fit the modern paradigm and, and you know, kind of like back formation, like, oh, that's what they were saying. It's not that at all. I'm not saying that one isn't capable of doing that. But I'm talking about intellectual honesty being able to actually understand that that's what they were trying to communicate. <clears throat> Can you give an example from quantum physics? Uh, well, the Big Bang Theory, for sure. Let's, let's just start with that. You know, um, I could, by the way, but, but just off the top of my head, I'll say uh, in terms of the Big Bang Theory, we say that 
that that God created, and this is thousands of years old, that God created the very first point of, of, of the material universe was something, they say, the size of a mustard seed. It was one point, one material point, and that, that God expanded it, or if you want to use the word, exploded it, and then that became the physical dimensions of the material universe. And then God said, enough, and put parameters around it. And so that is the Big Bang Theory. And amazingly, that first point, they go further, the rabbis go further, they say that first point of materiality was the foundation stone of the Holy Temple in Jerusalem, of the Beis HaMikdash, which means by extension, the entire world is one big Beis HaMikdash, one big dwelling place for God. So um, you also have more than that. The whole idea of, um, you know, the Vilna Gon says that when God said the word breishis, which means in the beginning, that's the first word of the Torah, in the beginning, that God created time at that moment. That was the invention of time. And we know that later physics have, have, have described time as an actual entity. It's not just some kind of airy-fairy kind of thing that we have decided to measure, but that it's actually, it actually has substance to it. And so the rabbis understood from the very beginning that time is a creation in and of itself. And it has to be, because God is beyond time, which means God has to have created time. Um, there, 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 there are others. There are others. But just off the top of my head, those are two that come to mind. Um, so we see, we see that on the 40th day, something assumes a form. Now, I want to contrast two 40-day periods right now. One is, after we receive the Torah, and the Torah, by the way, when we receive the Torah, that was like the creation of the world. Um, and I'll just show you how. It's a few steps, but I'll just say it quickly, and you can think about it another time, which is that... <clears throat> On the sixth day of creation, every single day of creation, it says Yom Echad, Yom Sheni, the first day, the second day, Yom Shlishi, the third day. But only on the sixth day does it say Yom Hashishi. The letter He goes beforehand. So it's Yom Echad, Yom Sheni, and then when you get to the sixth day, Yom Hashishi, the sixth day, the sixth day. So the rabbis are like, hey, why the letter hey? Why is it different from all the others, right? And they explain, Hashishi, the sixth day, is referring to the sixth day of Sivan, which is when the Torah was given at Mount Sinai. And that's also the day that human beings were created. And so God made a condition with the world. If we accept the Torah, the world will continue to exist. If we don't, it will go back to become, you know, an astonishing void, and emptiness. So from there you see all of creation was contingent on accepting the Torah at Mount Sinai. So in this way, the Torah at Mount Sinai is really in a lot of ways tied to the creation of the world itself. So that's a beginning. So what happens 40 days after we accept the Torah at Mount Sinai? 40 days from formation, if you will. The sin of the golden calf. What was the golden calf? We made a form out of God. 
What did we say? On the 40th day, formation takes place. And of course, that was a big sin. That was because it's a bummer. You don't make a format of God. God is beyond all forms. God is beyond, 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 beyond. But why did we, why did we create that form? That's the question. Why did we do that? Because there was something wrong with the relationship. Now, let me explain. Rabbi Green said something very beautiful in time. And it's just, again, you know, he phrased it so simply. But, you know, you can think of, if you stick to people who really know Torah, you can think about just casual things that they say for the, for the rest of your life, really. So this is something I heard him say. He said, you know, he says, movies, like romantic movies, you know, the, the structure is boy meets girl, boy loses girl, and then boy gets girl at the end, and then sometimes there's a wedding at the end of the movie, and then the movie ends. He says, that's when I'm interested in watching. I want to watch at that point. What happens once you have each other? What then? That's what I want to know. What do you do once you have each other? And we have God, and God has us. So the question is, what now? What do we do now? And so that idea of closeness was terrifying. And what was the whole idea of the golden calf? We needed a go-between. We said, God, I'm terrified. Let's have this golden calf. We'll have a go-between. And then that way, I don't have to deal with the utter terrifyingness of this level of closeness. So God says, okay, so I guess I'll have to just destroy you now. <laughs> and then Moshe says, no, please, don't do it, don't do it, don't do it. So God says, okay, I'm not going to do it. Um, not, not, by the way, God never wanted to destroy us. He just wanted Moshe to say, don't do it. And by the, I'm, I'm not just saying that. The, the Gomorrah says that. Because they learn it out from the language of the Torah itself. Because after God says, I'm going to destroy them and start over with you, Moshe, God then says, now stop trying to stop me. And Moshe says, wait a second, I didn't say anything. Oh, I'm supposed to stop him. <laughs> this, is, this is the Gomorrah. So then Moshe realized God never wanted to do it to begin with, but he wanted Moshe to stand up and go, no, don't do that, to fight for the relationship. It's funny, and it didn't occur to me why God wanted to do that until this moment. God wanted us to fight for the relationship. He wanted Moshe as our leader to fight on our behalf for that closeness which had gotten lost. That's tremendous. That's a, that's a big idea. In other words, you have to fight to stay close a lot of times. Rabbi Nachman refers to that as holy chutzpah. That a person has to say to God, you know what, you, you throw me away, I'm, st I'm going to keep on coming back. I'm not going to stop coming back to you, God. I'm going to keep on coming back. And he calls that holy chutzpah. So, so there we see maybe, maybe a, a strong source for that. But anyway, God hits the reset button and he lets us try again. So now listen to how this contrasts. All right? God, Moshe prays on behalf of the Jewish people. God says, okay. I'm going to give you the second tablets. We're going, to, we're going to do it again. We're going to try again. And that was on the first day of Elul. God says to Moshe, come back up on Mount Sinai. I'm going to give you the second tablets. Forty days later, now what have we been saying? Forty days is what? Formation, right? 
40 days after the first day of Elul, when we get our second chance, is Yom Kippur. In other words, how does it form? How does this relationship, this new relationship form? It takes on the shape of what? Forgiveness. Which means, you know what? It's true. We have this incredible closeness. And you were afraid before. You were so afraid before that something would go wrong, that you wanted this buffer, you wanted this golden calf in there. But I'm going to tell you a better idea. How about forgiveness? How about forgiveness, knowing that if anything goes wrong in the relationship, and it will because you're human beings, and I created you out of clods of earth, Things will go wrong. I built that into the system. That wasn't my imperfection, God forbid. I built imperfection for human beings into the system. Things will go wrong by necessity. But guess what? There's forgiveness. You don't have to be afraid of this closeness because I forgive you. And how serious am I about forgiving you, God says? I created on the first day of creation. Before I even created you, I created forgiveness. That's how serious I am about it. So let's be close. If anything goes wrong, we can fix it. Right? Like Rebbe Nachman says, if you believe that you can break something, you have to believe that you can repair it too. So, Shem should bless us that we should feel his love, that we should feel his closeness, that we should feel even amidst the fragility of the sukkah, which is the fragility of life itself, his constant presence and reassurance. And I'll just make one more point and we'll wrap it up. Which is, I told you that the sukkah represents this divine hug. And that the sukkah really mirrors the first letter of the word sukkah, which is a circle. That's like a complete, um, a complete embrace. So you would say to me, for a sukkah, therefore to be kosher, it has to have four walls, because isn't that the whole point? And yet, fascinatingly, a sukkah only has to have two and a half walls. So you would say, well, wait a second. Doesn't that sort of like undermine the whole idea? So I was thinking about that, and I want to suggest the following, which is that God is trying to tell us the following. Even when he seems invisible in our lives, he's still there, and we have to know that he's still there. Because if a sukkah is kosher with only two and a half walls, that means that the, full divine impre- that the full divine embrace is still in play. We just can't see it. Which is to give us reassurance for our lives that even in those moments when we can't see God's hand and we can't necessarily feel his embrace, he's still there and he's still embracing us. It should be a great, beautiful year for all of us, for the whole world, and we should see wonderful things and fantastic breakthroughs. Yeah. Yeah, there's no next week, is, there? is it...